0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.
1: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
4: In 1842, I left the old world for the new. just to the luck that brought me through to work upon the railway. me your
5: 16 times, day
3: One hundred years ago, most jobs involved physical work. Whether it was heavy labor out on the railroad or manual labor in a factory, We work with our bodies.
6: Today, for most people, physical labor has been replaced by mental labor.
1: Code monkey, get up, get coffee. Code monkey, go to job. Code monkey, have boring meeting with boring manager Rob.
6: Mind you, it can still be pretty tedious, although you don't have to wear work boots to write code. Ah, this subroutine is stuck
3: in the for loop. Uh, Barney, do you really need those steel-toed boots? Hey there are a lot of sharp corners in the server room. So, in the last century, many occupations have gone from muscle to mental, and sometimes not even a whole
1: lot of that. I'll have a hamburger and two orders of fries, please. So, three fries? No, two fries. Oh, I hit three. Uh, Did you want fries with that?
6: But in the 22nd century, how will today's jobs look to our descendants? Will there even be jobs? Perhaps automation and improved computation, you know, robots and the Internet, will bring about as much change as machinery did for our Industrial Revolution predecessors.
3: It's an intriguing thought. So what if we follow it a little farther? Welcome to the big picture science laboratory in which we imagined life without work. What technologies might take the stress and strain off of us so that we can enjoy endless leisure?
1: Whoa, it's time to uncross and cross my legs again.
3: Ah, there we go. Now, voice-activated television, screen number seven, let's watch my favorite reality show, Americans Are Idle. All five seasons take it from the top. And can I get some popcorn? Well, I might opt for a book, but the point here is, in our laboratory, we can conjure up this endless leisure world. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. The first thing we might imagine in our laboratory when we think of reducing our workload is robots. Shiny aluminum alloy androids doing our jobs for us, like Robbie the Robot, or this guy.
4: More exploded kernels of corn, sir. And churned fatty bovine lactation on this batch as well?
3: Uh, yeah, more popcorn with butter, thanks. And yes, with sodium chloride. But that's not the only version of our robot future anymore. You could say that the roboticists have gone soft. They're developing squishy, plushy automatons to stand in for those hard-edged metallic models. The future of labor devices that deal directly with humans will be soft robotics.
4: I think what we want to do is make sure that biology gets into the field of soft robotics as much as as we can.
6: It's a back-to-nature engineering approach that scientists such as Barry Trimmer are imagining. The field is combining many disciplines, from biology to computer engineering and materials science.
3: And as a sign that this technology is really going places, soft robotics has spawned its own journal, As a biologist and a neuroscientist, and now editor-in-chief of Soft Robotics, Professor Trimmer says there's a lot of research needed to engineer what's required to build these pliable PALs. For example, new sources of energy and new kinds of materials.
4: I think the hot topics are going to be how to make things move without motors, how to make hybrid machines, in other words, things that actually are composed both of living tissue and of machinery,
6: it's a still nascent vision for robots and of our
3: future. Barry, as we look to a future where robots do all the work for us, or at least some of the work for us, allowing us to catch up on our television uh, miniseries, how might soft robots take the load off better than the hard types that we usually consider our robots?
4: Well, the big problem with robots that we think of today is that they're based on factory machines. So they're hard and they're fast and powerful and you know they really do a good job in factories and very fixed situations but they're really not very good at working in the home or the office environment so you don't see robots in those situations and i think what soft robotics is aiming to do uh, its target is to try and make robots much much more available and accessible to do lots of things around in presence of humans and in natural environments
3: Well, maybe we should define what a soft robot is. I mean, I think of soft rock or soft drink or something, and they're not, you know, they're not the serious models. So so what is a soft robot? Is it just a kind of a laid-back
4: robot? That would be nice, but I think we also want to think of robots as being much more organic. A soft robot, to my way of thinking, is something that's much more like an animal. So it doesn't have to be completely squishy, but it needs to be... Uh, made largely of soft components, and that makes it work much, much better when you're trying to deal with it in in the house. And we don't currently know how to build those sorts of things, actually. That's the reason for this field being quite nascent. Do you think that the
3: fact that robots today are made out of hard materials, you know, that is aluminum or plastic or whatever, I mean, it's tough stuff compared to the kinds of things that we're made out of or our animal buddies are made out of, do you think that this could partially account for the fact that, you know, we've been talking about having helper robots in the home at the office for decades and we still don't have those guys? Is it because they're kind of incompatible being as hard-edged as they are?
4: That's exactly the problem. If you've got something that's really hard, stiff, and powerful, it has to be controlled very carefully. So it's what we call control safe. If those controls break down, it's not safe anymore. Um, soft robotics has the, the promise that the robot is intrinsically safe. If it breaks down and, and the controls don't work and it starts to flail around or do something it shouldn't, it's actually not going to do very much harm. So you're absolutely right. The use of very stiff materials is great because you can make something powerful. You know, it can dig up a road. But on the other side of things, that's not exactly what you want when you're trying to help an elderly person get around the house.
3: All right. So you literally mean soft robots. So if you had this robot in an invalid's dwelling, they could pick them up and carry them somewhere, whatever they need to do, without, you know, digging into their flesh. I mean, it's as simple as that.
4: It really is. And you'd think that that idea would have already happened and be pervasive in the house. But... The problem is that we, as engineers, don't really understand how to make those sorts of things yet.
3: Well, why couldn't we just sort of pad the kind of typical robots we already have?
4: We can certainly do that, but underlying it, of course, is still the problem that it's really hard. And the more padding you put on it, the more the traditional engineering approaches of control don't work. Because now you've got all this stuff between the parts that you're actually trying to control. So uh, there needs to be a different approach. We need to think about the way animals actually control their bodies and try and adapt that and use that in our robots.
3: Well, you're a biologist, so perhaps it isn't surprising that you look to animals for design inspiration. Give me some idea of the, the kinds of things that animals are better at that a titanium robot is not so good at.
4: Well, I think a really good example would be burrowing which sounds like, uh, you know, a skill that you wouldn't necessarily want in a robot, but just think about a search-and-rescue situation with a big pile of rubble, people buried under it, and it's really, really hard to get people out. Uh, We haven't yet found a successful robot that can navigate through that sort of environment and find its way to save somebody. Worms do this all the time, right? Animals burrowing through the soil are very, very good at doing that. And it would be nice to be able to use technology to build something that's soft and squishy. You can go through holes that are smaller than its normal size, so it can shrink and morph and change shape. And um, that's one of the the ideals, something that we'd really love to have, because if you could even deliver water to somebody in that situation, you it doubles the amount of time you have to get them out of the out of the uh, emergency. So that's just one small example. Imagine an octopus. An octopus that is absolutely huge can climb through tiny, tiny little holes and it does it by almost flowing like a liquid. Uh, we have no robots that can do that sort of thing.
3: Well, what will it take to make that kind of a robot? I mean, you need some sort of soft materials, but on the other hand, robots are filled with servo actuators and motors and maybe batteries and those are going to be kind of hard to make squishy.
4: You've, you've hit on a very, very important point because all our traditional motors and batteries, everything is made out of hard materials. So we need to develop entirely new approaches. Imagine making a, an actuator, a motor, that's just a, a sort of a soft jelly. And when you pass a current through it, it changes its shape or moves. That's the type of technology we need, because we have to replace the current existing technologies with these sorts of new materials. And the same for storing electricity or fuel. Humans, you know, we're burning hydrocarbons, protein, fat, sugar, perfectly safe, sitting in a room, burning stuff away. That's where our energy comes from. It would be really nice to be able to use that same sort of technology in a robot so that we have squishy fuel that's completely safe. It's not explosive. It's not dangerous. So those are the sort of advances that need to be made in material science primarily. That's, to me, a very intriguing point because traditional
3: robots... They usually run on electric power. They have, you know, electric motors and so forth. And that energy either comes from a a battery or a gasoline engine if they need a lot of, you know, a lot of energy to do their job. And gasoline motors are big, they're smelly, and they don't change their shape much. But animals run on fat, which apparently has a very high energy density, and it doesn't have these kinds of problems that a gas engine might have. Do you think that future robots are going to be able to run on fat? Can we build anything like that?
4: Well, I hope so, because we've got plenty of it. So um, here in the U.S., <laughs> we've certainly uh, got a gift. We don't actually have to import a lot of it. Um, but uh, but seriously, you know, fats or uh, those sorts of hydrocarbons, just biological materials, are exactly as energy-rich as kerosene or you know a- aircraft fuel. So how would you make something that does that? There are lots of ideas. I mean. It might be something synthetic, a material science sort of chemistry approach, but the other is to actually use tissues, living cells, as your robot. So if you can tissue engineer a robot, it will use sugar and protein and fat as its fuel sources.
3: Well, that sounds like you might actually take existing living tissue from some critter or other and put it into a robot, sort of making a robot-living thing hybrid like a Borg device.
4: Well, I I don't think that that's so far-reaching, actually. And although it's not the the main core of what soft robotics as a field is working on, there are certain people who are interested in this approach because if you could use cells, grow cells, to make the devices that you want, they're biodegradable, they're completely safe in the environment, you know, they're green technology, they're renewable. Uh, We don't access those sorts of materials for our robots right now. We don't build robots out of proteins and sugars. Uh, But there's no particular reason why we couldn't. Imagine silk, for example. Silk is a wonderful, tough material like Kevlar, but it's made by silkworms. And we use it all the time as clothing. So why can't we use tissues to sort of generate the machines that we want? It's a little bit science fiction-y, but there are people working on it right now. And um, I think that it it has a lot of promise, not for every sort of robot, absolutely, but for certain types of micro-robots, I think could be very, very useful. What
3: about the possibility that these things, particularly if they're incorporating real biological material, that these soft robots will transcend being robots and become something that we regard as uh, having their own existence, that they're alive?
4: I think that's an extremely important point. And I want to emphasize that, in my view of these robots, we will not grow the nervous system. So they would not have a brain. They wouldn't be sentient. They wouldn't have anything that we didn't give them in terms of computers. The computer would be a chip. So the living, moving parts would all be tissues, like muscle. And if you grow these muscles but don't grow the nervous system and don't grow a reproductive system, I think people are pretty much okay with that because it just becomes moving meat.
3: Well, finally, Barry, maybe you can give me some sort of utopian vision of the future of soft robotics. Will there be creeping, flying, crawling robots everywhere doing my chores so I can sleep in on a Monday morning?
4: I hope so, and I hope that those robots are actually completely safe, social, uh, and things that make you laugh.
3: Well, soft things certainly appeal to us when we're young. They still appeal to me today. Barry Trimmer, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Seth.
6: Barry Trimmer is professor of biology, neuroscience, and biomedical engineering at Tufts University, and he's the editor-in-chief of Soft Robotics.
3: Coming up, another reason to relax and let the machines take over. Let our laboratory imagine a time for you when you can barrel down the highway at 80 miles an hour with your eyes shut. Of course, you can do that now, but this might be safer when you leave the driving to your driverless car.
6: Also, the invention that made us workaholics in the first place, the light bulb.
3: Welcome to our laboratory on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash X-N-A-S. Okay, so soft, pliable bags of electronics, maybe even some living tissue, might someday slither, burrow, and crawl around our homes and on our work sites, taking a burden off our lives. It sounds as if that will finally allow us to escape into a world of pure leisure. Well, almost.
6: Because who can relax when there's still plenty of tension to be
3: had? Pick a lane, you stupid On the road. Yes. Few things are as pleasure-lowering and blood pressure-raising as driving on your favorite five-lane highway with a surprising, glorious 20-minute traffic jam guaranteed to make your head completely pop off.
6: Well, that just sounds messy. So let's stay calm in our laboratory and imagine what it would be like to let another automated system take over for us, this time in the driver's seat.
3: Please ferry me to the ferry building on Ocean Street. Yes, uh, estimated time in heavy traffic, 17 minutes.
1: Oh, good, I can finish this chapter. Before you, Bella, I was a vampire in a moonless night, dark and forbidding.
3: The car is not entirely driverless. I mean, there is a driver, a bunch of sensors, a computer, and other miscellaneous circuitry steering and maneuvering that stylishly formed hunk of steel down the road. Now, we can't promise that our laboratory driverless car will talk to you in an appealing accent, but the plan is for cars to become driverless. Google has a driverless car project, and so does Carnegie Mellon University.
6: Where Red Whitaker works as a roboticist.
3: Red, from the pictures I've seen of driverless cars, it looks like there's uh, an engineer sitting in the driver's seat. Of course, he's not doing much or not not obviously doing much, so are driverless
7: cars really driverless? They are indeed, and these cars utilize cameras, lasers, computers to reason about where they are, where they're going, how to stay out of trouble, how to get there, and then work the pedals and the steering wheel to get around. The human is typically there as a safeguard, but mostly as an artifact of the current culture to take responsibility, but there is a phase in that's moving toward completely driverless in the course of a couple years.
3: There are two things that strike me about a driverless car, and I think they probably strike the listeners as well. First off, of course, you have to navigate. You need to know where the roads are and which roads you should take to get to wherever you're going to go. The second thing, however, is to be aware of your surroundings, and that strikes me as a much bigger problem. Uh, Sometimes you're driving in the countryside and you might be going at high speed depending on the road. And if some small critter starts to cross the road, you have to make a decision whether to try and avoid hitting that thing or to hit it. Because if you try and avoid it, you might kill yourself. Uh, Is that sort of intelligence being built into these cars?
7: It is indeed. So in the early days of technical development, it was a very big deal to set up some big boxes in a closed course and have the sensors see the boxes and somehow get through the course without hitting boxes. That evolved to smaller and smaller objects, eventually moving objects, and then some sensing thermal as well as leg motion that can determine what's an animal. And the dynamics are such that there's always a prediction of what the other moving objects are on the scene, and are you going to cut behind them, cut in front of them, or is it an imminent danger to occupants to make the avoidance at all?
3: Red, do we really want highways filled with driverless cars? I mean, you know, navigating uh, in the traffic, dealing with the guys who are zipping down the freeway at uh, 20 miles over the speed limit, getting on the on-ramps, whatever. Perhaps you can tell me what the motivation is for making a driverless car. I, I, I would hesitate to get into one at this point.
7: The big motivations are safety, efficiency, driving experience, and convenience. So... These technologies that model and interpret are also superb for warning and avoiding accidents. The cooperative traffic that is working together to maximize throughput and the number of people that are on the road does an awful lot better than the enlightened competition of aggressive drivers. The convenience of dropping the car to be parked on its own versus winding through city blocks to find the parking location and then heading out to a meeting and heading back is a real challenge in many places and getting a lot worse so there are many very differing dimensions of why this would make some sense
3: what would you think is the first application for a driverless car where where would you Put it first if you had one today.
7: Depending on how you think about it today, a car is driverless when you hit that lane-keeping cruise control and it holds headway from other traffic and doesn't depart from your driving lane. The convenience of dropping a car near a parking facility and then having it pick you back up at your request is a very rational use. Uh, Highway driving is an early adoption, and that's one which is very amenable to the automation. So we'll see a lot of it that is introduced for steady highway driving. It then moves up the ladder of application to urban settings and settings where the driving is for very long distance and duration.
3: Well, finally, Red, when do you foresee my being able to get behind the wheel of my car there in the driveway without actually having to get behind the wheel?
7: The capability should be available on the commercial market about five years.
3: Red Whitaker, thank you so much for speaking with us.
7: Such a pleasure.
6: Red Whitaker is a roboticist at Carnegie Mellon University.
3: Okay, well, we might not even be considering this laboratory where we picture workload-easing technologies if it wasn't for a light bulb that went off in the head of one man more than a century ago. Thomas Edison.
6: Today, electricity is so woven into the fabric of our lives, we don't think about it. So it's hard to imagine the profound switch of going from gas to electric lighting. And it was as simple as that, a flick of the switch.
3: The glow of that carbonized thread filament changed everything, including, and profoundly, how we work, how we play, how we use our time. We couldn't have a 24-7 workday without it.
6: And so we're still very much living in the age of Edison, the title of University of Tennessee historian Ernest Freeberg's book, an age that began more than 100 years ago when industrialists saw the light and wired up their factories and offices. The early results?
5: Well, the reaction was mixed. Uh, There were some professions where having more light was much appreciated, uh, especially compared to working under gas light or under some dangerous, uh, murky conditions with natural light. Uh, but, of course, the big concern was being forced to work the night shift.
3: Okay, so this was the heyday of factory work. Uh, toward the end of the 19th century, owners saw their expensive tools sitting around idle all night, but that wasn't a new problem. It had begun with the Industrial Revolution a century earlier, so didn't factories already have some lighting? You seem to imply they had light.
5: Well, some used lanterns. There was some experiment with gaslight. Gaslight was both expensive and also pretty dangerous. So there were a lot of problems with, you know, with, you can imagine with the open flames in a textile mill, for example. Uh, when workers had to use tools, they had to, in their spare hand, carry a lantern with them. So that was cumbersome. So this powerful electric light illuminating an entire workspace, uh, and then some focused light on a particular workspace uh, really transformed the workplace in a lot of industries.
3: Okay, so Edison invents the electric light in the 1870s. They had gas light in the factories. Before that, we today think of gas light as being intimate, being warm. But if your factory or house was lit with gas, it it wasn't such a gas, was it?
5: It was a terrible technology. People were hungry for light, so they were willing to put up with its many terrible side effects. It spewed uh, sort of an acid fumes into the air that were corrosive of fabrics and paints and so forth. It also spewed a byproduct was steam, uh, was water, so uh, things were drenched. And, yeah, it was very, very unhealthy, as well as being a fire hazard. It was a big part of the cycle of a day, uh, not just cleaning in the spring, but cleaning uh, every morning to get the lamps ready for the next night's burning.
3: So there was this entire infrastructure that existed at the time of Edison's development for gas lighting. They probably didn't look very
5: favorably upon this new invention. Absolutely. And the gas companies were politically connected and resisted tooth and nail spread lots of uh, stories about how dangerous electricity was and actually responded to the competition by developing much better gaslight. So it actually was decades before, you know, if you were owning a new home and you had to decide whether to put gas lines into your house or electric lines, it wasn't really until the 1920s that it was sort of a toss-up and the people increasingly went to electric light.
3: Well, what were some of the things they were saying about electric lighting? Can you give me an example?
5: Well, the most obvious thing is that you would kill yourself if you put it into your house. Uh, People were being electrocuted in the streets, uh, especially with the powerful arc lights, the AC power lights. Electricity was launched into the world without all of the safety regulations and issues worked out. There was no insulation, for example, for the wires. There was no sort of public control over where wires went. So wires were put up very haphazardly, uh, particularly in the United States where there was very little regulation And starting in the 1870s, and really for the next 20 or 30 years, there were some very grotesque electrocutions, horses running into wires, pedestrians running into wires, uh, houses being burned down, factories, whole sections of cities being burned down because of faulty wiring. So the gas companies didn't have to make up a lot of slander against uh, electricity in order to convince people this might not be something you want to have in your walls.
3: Today, we're kind of used to streets, particularly in urban areas. I'm thinking of New York City, for example. You, you don't see, you know, phone poles running down every street, you know, laden with cables. But that wasn't the case back then. I mean, there, were, there was the telegraph, stock ticker wires, obviously electricity and so forth. And, and these things weren't very high up. You could uh, reach up and grab
5: some of these things, right? Absolutely. There was a thick forest of wires. Most of them were operating at a very low voltage, so they weren't uh, dangerous. They were more unsightly and, and inconvenient. Uh, but once you added the high-powered A.C. power wires uh, into that mix and they started to cross with those other wires, uh, then that entire network could become very dangerous. People's phones would suddenly erupt into blue flames and shoot sparks. Uh, you know, the crossed wires were a serious problem. But Edison had some real advantages, and one of them was that he was thinking in terms of a wider system and not simply something. You know, others were trying to light a house or a ship. Edison was trying to light city blocks.
3: And he was also trying to light factories, right? So, I mean, there are several effects here on workers. I mean, many people had factory jobs by this point. To begin with, of course, the factories could stay open later at night. Tell me something about that. I mean, were there night shifts before the electric bulb?
5: Well, there was a lot of resistance to the night shift. And, in fact, this, you know, just at a time in the late 19th century, uh, as you've suggested, a time when more and more people are working in factories, There's a real push and attempt to get organized by workers to push for the eight-hour day, right at the time when when the the capitalists who are investing in these machines are saying, electricity is this magical tool that's going to allow me to get twice as much work out of my investment in these tools if I can keep them running. The trick is to get the human investment involved, and workers were very resistant. They refused night shifts. They went on strike uh, against the night shift and ultimately managed not to stop the night shift but to uh, limit it and also to make sure that uh, people who worked the night shift got paid a bit more. Electric light also clearly changed people's sleep patterns Uh, and this is something that psychologists now are understanding more and more about uh, what happens when you disrupt the circadian rhythms. Uh, People didn't use that language when they were talking about this in the late 19th century but they were certainly aware of the fact that Uh, Urban people were suffering from a lot of uh, problems of depression and nervous exhaustion and and so forth. Uh, And they considered electric light and and the sort of long hours to be part of. I mean, it was that along with noise and pollution and crowding and the stress of of, uh, uh, transportation in the city and and so forth. There were a lot of causes for this. But electric light was was one part of that.
3: So, Ernest, what, what, what kind of industries would adopt the electric light in the 1880s?
5: Well, the very first to be interested in this were transportation industries. I mean, this is the beginning of what evolved into a 24-7 economy. So uh, railroads were very interested in installing light in depots. Uh, They experimented with electric headlights so that they could run their trains. It was very unusual to run trains at all and certainly not at full speed at night with just an oil lamp in front of the locomotive. So trying to find a way to get a powerful electric light up there. Shipping was the same way, it was a lot safer to ship once electric uh, buoys and electric signals and lighthouses were developed. So the transportation industry that we now take for granted as a a crucial part of this industrial takeoff, you know, you could deliver goods essentially 24 hours a day with the help of electric light. And electric light was, I mean, clearly there were problems with forcing workers to work longer, but you can point to lots of industries where workers were delighted to have the electric light, uh, that it made it a much safer, cleaner uh, work site, that they could do better work, frankly. In the textile mills, in printing, the workers had to have a sense of color, of detail. Uh, They also had to worry about not sticking their hands in the wrong spot to have it chopped off, and having a strong electric light really made the workplace much safer. Uh, By the early 20th century, governments were starting to insist that uh, a well-lit workplace was an essential part of worker safety.
3: So Edison's bulb, which produced the kind of light we get from incandescent bulbs today, it's warmer, it's, uh, you know, the the filament is uh, at pretty low temperature as these things go, so it makes everything look better. It's smaller and and safer, requires less maintenance. It really was
5: a huge step forward. It was, and uh, it it transformed workers' lives in another way because it really created a, a vibrant nightlife. You know, in addition to putting pressure on workers to work later, it also uh, meant that once they did finally get off work, that this electric light was really a lure. You know, it's not just something that's utilitarian, but it's actually quite beautiful. And uh, Edison was, among many others, who were trying to find ways to adapt it to amusement parks and to theaters and to night baseball and uh, a whole wide range of areas where, where working people began to uh, create the sort of urban nightlife that we now sort of associate with the American city.
3: Well, to elaborate on that just just a bit, I mean, there's really something transformative about the light bulb in a way that some of the other edison inventions I'm thinking of the phonograph here you know don't really represent i mean that was a good thing and it's led to the recorded music industry and that's all fantastic but the light bulb really changed civilization did it not
5: yeah i think that's the case and it's part of a long you know if you you can go back Uh, through all of human civilization, and find a hunger for light as one of the basic elements, you know, after food and shelter, that we long for light. You know, Edison is just one part of a much longer process that's still with us today as we saturate ourselves with more and more light.
3: Ernest Freberg, thank you so very much for talking with us.
5: My pleasure.
6: The Age of Edison, Electric Light and the Invention of Modern America, is Ernest Freeberg's book. He's an historian at the University of Tennessee.
3: Without Edison's 20th century invention, we wouldn't have neon signs, home appliances, all-night cafes, and a 24-7 work life. But could an invention of the 21st century actually reduce that workload?
6: Up next, the Internet of Everything. It's the ultimate hookup as we welcome you to our laboratory on Big Picture Science.
0: Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.
3: Okay, so one invention more than 100 years ago has kept us up all night working. And another invention this century has kept us up all night working. But wait, could the Internet actually free us from endless toil?
6: Probably not from some things, but from other things, perhaps if we tap into the Internet of Things, also referred to as the Internet of Everything.
3: In our laboratory, we see a future that interconnects all the devices of our lives, including our own bodies.
6: So from your toaster to your roaster to you.
2: Hi, this is Rob Chanduk, and I work at Qualcomm on the Internet of Everything and on interactive platforms.
3: From his lab at Qualcomm, a semiconductor company that makes digital wireless telecommunication products, Rob Chanduk envisions a world where everything is connected. One of
2: the things that we're seeing is actually things being connected for reasons. And one of the things we're focused on in our project is actually making it useful. So if I do something like leave the refrigerator door open or the washing machine finishes, wouldn't it be nice if I was watching TV if it would say, hey, you know, the load's finished, or the load is unbalanced, you might want to fix that, and just do some very simple things that, over time, build up into more interesting experiences.
3: So what you're saying is not only will there be chips in these uh, household devices, I mean, there are already chips in many of them, but that these chips are, what, connected to the Internet?
2: Well, not necessarily the Internet, and this is actually, I think, a really interesting point. I may not want somebody in the cloud to know when I flush my toilet. What I really want to think about is how can I use... interact with the things that are around me. So one of our focuses is actually what you might consider the proximal cloud. What is the cloud of devices that are near me? Because as humans, we actually interact with things that are near us in a different way.
3: Can you give me an example of how this would change my sort of daily existence, at least as it comes to things like, well, you've mentioned home appliances, uh, heating, cooling, I don't know, uh, the security system in my house, things like that?
2: Um you know, we've focused a lot on consumer electronics experiences, so one of the ones I might imagine is, say I'm listening to something on NPR in the morning, and I'm moving through my house. I have breakfast, and I go upstairs, and I go to the bathroom. Wouldn't it be nice if the audio followed me wherever I went and could play it alone low enough volume that it didn't disturb other people in the house? And that's a combination of both putting things out and also sensing where you are. And it's that combination of things that we think will drive the experience for the Internet of Things.
3: Outside the home where would we expect the Internet of Things to have a real impact? Uh, how about our cars, for example?
2: Yeah, I think cars are absolutely one of the next things. You see a lot of auto manufacturers thinking about The dashboard of the car actually being an interface or a programming API where other developers that write, say, an application for your smartphone might then interact with the car directly. So you could get into a car you've never been in before and your radio stations could be set, your preferences for your seat and other things could all be derived and and discussed between the devices that are in your pocket and the device that you're using.
3: Well, I can see how these things would be convenient, but would they actually save me time and and labor. I mean, you talk about the uh, washing machine letting me know that it's done with my load of laundry. But on the other hand, my washer already has a bell that it rings, and if I'm anywhere nearby, I hear that. So uh, how is this going to take a a load off my shoulders?
2: Well, I mean, some of it is actually that convenience, and some of it will actually be things that not only maybe make your load easier but actually might save you money. So we're already starting to th- see things like smart thermostats that look at the patterns of behavior and save your energy bill. I happen to use one of those. but. We're also seeing places where, for example, people use hot water differently than we do here in the United States. You know, I have it, an instantaneous heater that is always available. But in other markets, you actually, before you go take a shower, like when I'm visiting my, my relatives in India, I actually turn on the electric water heater half an hour before I go take a shower. Well, wouldn't it be nice if... I was doing a load of laundry in a system like that where the washing machine could actually tell the water heater, hey, heat me up some water, and when you're done, turn off and save electricity. So it's a combination of of all of those things that I think are going to both save money and actually take a load off your shoulders.
3: What about wiring ourselves? To to what extent will we do that? I mean, you know, health monitoring comes to mind. Maybe we have a chip that uh, keeps track of, I don't know, our blood pressure, oxygenation levels, whatever is important uh, in, in terms of our health and, and sends that information someplace where it might do some good.
2: Oh, yeah, that's certainly happening. There's a lot of people, you know, at universities in San Diego and other, other markets, and there's a lot of companies that are thinking about that level of interactivity. One of the things that I think is interesting is making these devices interoperate. So as you might get a blood pressure monitor from one manufacturer right now that only works with their system, over time, you might be able to say, well, I'm going to get this sensor from company X and the sensor from company Y, and the thing that helps me learn or perform better as a runner from a brand that I am familiar with or want to be associated with. And over time, developers can find that next killer combination of all those things to build better experiences.
3: Doesn't this uh, demand a sort of standard for the communication in in the same way that maybe Bluetooth is some sort of standard for Wi-Fi? I mean, do we have that yet?
2: I I totally agree that it needs a standard, but I would put up up a layer above the radio. I would think of it more like the analog to what happened on the Internet when we all standardized around HTTP and HTML. So the things that the web are built on that we're used to seeing in that browser bar, that really became the foundation for commerce, right? There was digital advertising that let us have other services so people could shift things onto the web. On the internet of things, there isn't that common protocol yet. And actually one of the projects I'm working on at Qualcomm is a proposal for that standard platform.
3: I think that your team is working on something called the thousand times data challenge. I may have mispronounced that, but uh, it's some ability to provide a thousand times the bandwidth available today via the internet. What are the conceptual and practical breakthroughs that you need to do this?
2: I think if you really want to think about the thousand time challenge, I mean, the demand for it, I don't think anybody really needs a lesson in. It's that we all see that we want to drive more and more content to things that are closer and closer to us. We want to see our movies on our tablets, on our smartphones. But the question is how we get the networks to not only deliver them, but to deliver them at a cost that matches what we're willing to pay for for those services. And the, really, this, in my mind, the simplest way to explain the change that's going to happen is think of the cell towers. Well, actually, even think about TV towers as they started before. We would have one TV tower that would cover an entire city, and that meant everybody had to watch all the same thing all the same time. And then we got cell phones, and they were maybe now maybe I have 100 of these radio towers, and they're covering a the whole city. And I can get a certain amount. It costs a certain amount to deliver that. If I want to go to that 1,000 times, I almost have to get to the point where I have one of those towers in my house and in my car and very near me because I almost want to be served by my own de- dedicated tower. And that's the sort of a, a way of thinking about the concept of the kind of things that we have to do to make this happen.
3: To what degree, Rob, are we making the sensors smaller, the things that actually you know, measure something? <laughs> are they small enough now that uh, you know we can really put a lot of these things... I don't know, into uh, our clothes uh, in addition to our bodies?
2: Well, there are a lot of people working on that. That isn't an area that we ourselves focus on, but... There's just a lot of really interesting research going on, not only in making them smaller. Some of these sensors are actually small enough, and the real problem we have is getting power to them. So one of the things I'm fascinated by is people that are working on what they call harvesting energy. So maybe the sensor that's in your clothes is powered not by a battery, but by the very fact that you move. And it stores up enough to actually send that little bits of information that it needs to, to say your phone, to help you aggregate and measure how many steps you walk that day.
3: You know, it's hard to avoid the temptation to liken all of this to an electronic nervous system. And the obvious question is, could this network at, at some level of complexity, when it gets way down the road here, could it become its own sentient system? Might it become an intelligence far greater than our own?
2: Well, I think that's the the uh, singularity that we all kind of both joke about and are terrified of. But... um it could happen but in in a large part we're actually dividing tasks up onto really smaller and smaller devices and i think the part of the problem that we haven't even solved yet is making that work in and of itself much less get to the point of intelligence and i think what you're going to see is you know sometimes people say because we have the internet all the intelligence gets pushed into the cloud i think a lot of the people who are working in the internet of things actually see it exactly the opposite that the intelligence gets pushed closer and closer to you and actually, the focus then is on how we build these distributed agents that talk to each other and communicate in a useful fashion. And it's a fascinating area of research.
3: Well, finally, Rob, do you think it's possible to be too connected Is this clearly a step forward for our descendants?
2: Uh, wow, that's a pretty tough question. Um, I think everything is good in moderation. I mean, I think that's an approach to take here. So I'm I'm probably not going to be one of those guys that records everything I do and posts it on the internet but I do think there are things that I would like to have happen you know we talked earlier about the washing machine you're right the washing machine that we have plays a song when the load's done but it plays a different song when it's got a problem and I don't want to remember which song is which because I have a perfectly good way of figuring that out it could send me a message so we're trying to focus on making things useful and I think that if we do that then I don't think we'll go too far and be over-electronic or over-subscribed to these kind of ideas. Rob Chanduk, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Seth. Thanks for having me.
6: Rob Chanduk is a computer scientist and president of Qualcomm Interactive Platforms.
3: Okay, so we've created a futuristic world in our laboratory, one in which the machines do the work, make the decisions, and relieve us of neuron-numbing drudgery. But is that how it would really play out one man who has made a
1: living imagining the future is this guy. I'm Andre Bormanis. I'm a writer and uh, science consultant.
6: Andre Bormanis has worked on the Star Trek series, and in those stories, having the machines work for us creates a kind of utopia. But what if the machines take over the work we like doing?
3: So, Andre, you work in the biz of imagining future worlds. So I do. F- <laughs> so if <laughs> robots and computers really do take over a lot of our work, what would we do with all that free time? I mean, how do you picture that?
1: It's a good question, and I think it's going to be a real challenge for most people. We've, uh, for the last couple of hundred years at least, lived in a uh, society that's pretty structured and that places a very high value on work. Jobs provide us with an extraordinary degree of structure in our lives. And I think a lot of people wouldn't really know what to do with themselves if they were suddenly... Freed from that responsibility.
3: Well, in science fiction, what are they doing? Because I never see people—I don't know—collecting the garbage or mining copper or or even fixing the water heater. I mean, <laughs> wh- what are they generally doing? What what what's the job description for most of these people in the 23rd century?
1: Well, in the in the sort of ideal future that uh, we envisioned on Star Trek, uh, most of the population didn't need to be engaged in producing goods and services for other people. We had replicators. We had all sorts of devices for doing the hard work necessary to ensure human survival. And in the Star Trek universe, the idea was that people followed their own dreams and desires. They they sought self-fulfillment. They sought education, adventure, learning.
3: So they were kind of ennobling themselves by writing music or reading books or self-improvement.
1: Yeah, they were kind of like, you know, the landed gentry of a few centuries ago, where uh, if you were lucky enough to be born into a wealthy family, you didn't really have to work for a living. You had servants, you had money, you had pretty much anything you needed. And so you were typically raised to read, to become uh, conversant in the arts and the sciences to some extent, and then you pretty much did what you wanted to do. And I think we may be moving toward a world where that kind of a lifestyle is available for most people rather than a select few, but of course those kinds of predictions have been made before. I think John Maynard Keynes said back in the 1920s that 100 years from his time frame, people would be working at most 15 hours a week. Well, here we are almost 100 years later, and we're all more or less working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, if not more. And in fact, I think there's a bigger problem with being overworked in this society than uh, having too much leisure time.
3: Why do we think this will be different in the future then? I mean, is it just more hype like the Hugo Gernsback magazines of a half century ago?
1: Well, I think there is definitely a hype component to it. The future never seems to arrive as quickly as science fiction writers tend to imagine. But we have seen real advances in automation that have eliminated a lot of jobs that used to be you know, good um, middle-class income kinds of manufacturing jobs. If you look at the Midwest, and Detroit is uh, sadly a pretty good example of this, yes, a lot of those jobs were exported to other countries, but a lot of them were eliminated through automation. And even in my field of writing, people are developing more and more sophisticated programs. And I think it's probably uh, not too hard to imagine a day in the not-too-distant future where computers, uh, programs on computers, can generate story ideas that are actually pretty inventive, can uh, take some of the drudgery out of television writing, which is you know, something of a manufacturing process uh, when you're trying to crank out 22 episodes a year of a TV show. And, uh, you know, I think that that pattern is only going to continue.
3: Well, Andre, this gets to, I think, an essential point. I mean, we're plenty happy to have the machines take over the kind of burdens that we just don't want to impose on ourselves. I can easily imagine them doing things we don't like, uh, such as gluing together tennis shoes, for example. But you've spoken about jobs we do like to do, whether it's writing TV sitcoms or musicals or parenting, stuff like that. How are we going to forestall that doesn't happen, too.
1: That I think that's a really good question, and I'm not sure we can forestall that possibility. It seems somewhat inevitable to me that as our software becomes more sophisticated, it's going to be able to take on more and more of what we used to consider the sole domain of human intellect. You know, Computers have been grand chess masters for almost 20 years now computer beat a couple of uh, champions on jeopardy which is a somewhat more challenging kind of intellectual exercise in many ways and I, I you know there are computers that write fairly decent music nowadays it's it's kind of predictable and repetitive but you can imagine that as these programs grow ever more sophisticated they'll be able to take over the kinds of things that uh, were once exclusively in the domain of humans and i don't know i don't think i would be satisfied purely being a consumer but as a creator, as somebody who writes uh, I may have to make room for creators who are not human
3: Andre Bormanis, thank you very much
1: You're very welcome
6: Andre Bormanis is a television writer, producer screenwriter and science advisor to Star Trek Well Seth, do you think a machine could produce this radio show?
3: Well, I hate to say it, Molly. Careful what you say next. <laughs> yes, yes, I don't want to encourage you. Any, any machines that would like to apply for this position, please send us a resume. Uh, you know, eventually that might very well be the case. But on the other hand, the good news is the listeners will also be machines.
6: <laughs> you think so. Is there one task in your life that you would like a machine to take over, or a robot to take over?
3: Oh, there are many tasks. Name and, one. Well, uh, doing the weekly shopping for one or the laundry, you know, folding underwear and socks. I mean, I just as soon have a... I mean, that's a domestic task that's always being given over to the robots. It's the first thing you get rid of. But still, it would make my life better.
6: But they have not developed a robot yet that can fold a towel faster than a human. A, a, A robot can fold a towel, but it's my understanding it takes a long time, but then you could do a couple loads of laundry.
3: Well, you know, you start them off in the morning, you go to work, you come back, they're all folded. The fact that it took six hours for them to fold it, hey... That's no sweat off my titanium skin.
6: Thank you to our laboring crew, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy-David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your
6: ears have been attuned to welcome to our laboratory. And the most laborious part of the show has been trying to say laboratory. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And you know what else is online? Our Big Picture Science app. You might find it on iTunes, Android, and on Windows 8.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because it takes a lot less labor to punch buttons on your car radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Get ready to geek out. The
0: Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Tech
4: moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch.